Hi, it's Alex. Thanks for downloading the Youth in Education podcast, and welcome to our new series, The Life Pedagogic. In this series of podcast episodes, we'll be interviewing high-profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. Guests will come from a wide range of disciplines, including internationally. These podcasts will be exploratory, open discussions, inviting you into the speaker's worlds and encouraging challenging thinking. We hope you enjoy listening. It's often remarked that many of a school's problems would disappear overnight if a teacher was the minister in charge of education policy. If only one of our own was at the controls, schools would be transformed for the better. But at the same time, we live in a political culture where most ministers typically oversee departments where they have little to no direct professional experience. Secretaries of State for Health are not doctors, heads of DCMN are not artists. But once in a while, this rule is subverted and an individual with frontline expertise slips through into the corridors of power. Baroness Estelle Morris is perhaps the first of those individuals in the world of education policy. After nearly 20 years in the classroom, she became the very first state school teacher to be Secretary for State for Education. During her time in office, she distinguished herself by her intimate knowledge of the sector and her focus on school improvement. In the end, she made perhaps one of the bravest decisions one can ever make in politics to admit her own limits. Secretaries of State today could no doubt learn a lot from her, and hopefully so can we. Baroness Estelle Morris, welcome to Your Life Pedagogic. Thank you very much indeed. It's good to be talking with you. Baroness Estelle Morris, you're currently the chair of the Birmingham Education Partnership, which supports schools in a city you taught in for 18 years and who you represented as an MP for 13 years. How have you seen schools in the West Midlands change since you first died teaching there? Oh, gosh. Well, it's, it's a long time ago now. And of course, they've changed because society's changed. But just as a broad brush, I think now that schools are more demanding. There's higher expectations. There's greater rigour. I think it's more exhausting. I think it's a tougher job. I think the quality of teaching is better and children get a better deal than in the era that, that, that I taught. But in a way... The, the, more, the higher aspirations you have, the more you understand about what needs to be done. And that, that's like a formula. You want, a, you want everybody to succeed and society needs everyone to succeed. But that's actually really tough. So it's good that we've changed, that we want everyone to succeed and we need everyone to succeed. But I never ignore the pressures that that's put on the system. So I think, to sum it up, I think the school system's far better than it was. The quality of teaching is much improved. The achievement is greater, but it's a tougher and more stressful job than it was when I was in the classroom. And do you perceive any unique challenges that schools in the West Midlands face relative to, say, London or the rest of the country? Well, it reflects the area and it's got huge advantages as well. So if you you think of the advantages that it's got with London, I think there are advantages of urban centres. And that's what you might call the social capital. And I think uh, London schools have done incredibly well. I mean, statistically, the best place to be in school if you're poor is in London. That, you know, statistically, your chances of, of improving and closing that attainment gap are greater in London than anywhere else. And I think that social capital, they, um, the diversity of people, the diversity of jobs, the role models, the museums, the galleries, the sports facilities the urban infrastructure, the leisure facilities, all those matter in terms of um, a child's education. But where I think it's tougher, and it's true in Birmingham, I think many of those urban centres have got fragmented communities. 
suffer from a degree of community lack of cohesion. I think there's a lot of poverty, as there is in rural areas, but I think poverty in urban areas is very stark and often sits side by side, great affluence. So I think in Birmingham, we share all those advantages of being um, a a big urban centre, but especially in our inner cities, I think we have got real problems in some of our communities who feel really left behind. And don't forget, that's within that context of this being the generation of schools where we need them all to succeed. That, that, that left behind communities has always been there. I think the, the great difference we have to remember was two or three generations ago, nobody, the, the economy didn't need them to succeed and we didn't really understand the social consequences of them not succeeding. So it's a, it's a different ballgame in, uh, uh, in some respects. Estelle Morris, I now want us to take a deep dive into the annals of your life. What's your very first memory of being in a school? Actually being in nursery school, to tell you the truth, when um, I couldn't have been more than two, and it, that was in uh, the north of Manchester. I was born in uh, Mars Platting in the north of Manchester, and I hated it. I can remember not liking nursery. I really remember the only thing I can recall was that, as now, all your coat pegs, and they used to make you go to bed in the afternoon. That was what I didn't like. I can remember that I was beef a ball. Everything, my bed, my coat peg, all had beef a ball. And beyond that, all I can remember is wanting to go home. So, um, But once I got to school as an infant, I enjoyed school. I enjoyed primary school tremendously. I did well, uh, very supportive parents. And I could, I, I suppose, it's like all children, I, because I did well, I got a fair amount of praise and um, that makes you confident. But I, I like sport, I like running about, I like being with people. So those primary years were, um, were very happy years for me. And growing up, Estelle Morris, I understand, on a council estate in North Manchester? Uh, in South Manchester. We, we moved, uh, my family are both from North Manchester, but I, I, we moved, my, my parents got their own first home, I suppose. And then we moved to Withenshaw, which is in South Manchester, yes. And that's where I did all my primary education. What was life like for young people in that community? What did you see your peers growing up to do? It was very cohesive. I lived in, people will be familiar with that interwar housing where there's a road with avenues off. And I lived in an avenue that was on the road, but it was an avenue. And, you know, I often think about this. If I go round my avenue, so there were three sides to the avenue with four houses on each. So that would be 12 houses. You know, for all the years I lived there, I can't actually remember anybody moving out or moving in. And so that, that, that stability, it was a very, very stable community. So the children I got, lots of families, some old elderly people, we brought up their families and they'd moved on. So it had all those advantages of a stable community. And I knew the other adults. So I I felt safe with any of the adults in that avenue. And they all knew my mum and dad. And my grandmother lived down the road and I was safe to run down the road to her. And I, I look now that council states now often don't have that stability. So it was a very, very happy place to be. And um you know, there were some badly behaved kids and there were some parents, some adults who didn't mow their lawns and keep their gardens tidy. You know, life was there. But on the whole, um, 
they were good and parents wanted their children to do well. And um, it was still the selective system. We all did our 11 plus in those days. But um, I, I enjoyed that council estate. It was a good place to live. I, I was happy in it. And Stel Morris, were your family very political? And if so, can you tell us about your absolutely. earliest memories of being engaged in politics? Yeah, yeah, they, they were absolutely. My mum met my dad in the what's known as the Labour League of Youth in North Manchester, which is now the Young Socialists. And then uh, my dad was an active trade unionist. He was a postal worker. Uh, he left school at 14, as my mum did, and he went to be um, a, a telegraph boy carrying the, the messages in those days, the telegrams. Telegram boy, I suppose. And then he was a, worked at the post office, which was very active in the, what was the UPW now, then, as the UCW now. And he was on the council. Um, I think he got elected to the council when I was about one year old. So I've grown up in a very political family. And so um, my earliest memories of politics is leafleting, uh, going with my dad, collecting subs on a Sunday morning before direct debit. And then um, also the thing I liked best was on election day, um, people will know that there's tellers on, on, a, on, a, on a, at the polling booth. And being a child, I had the job of collecting the cards from the tellers and running back to the committee room. I, I loved all that. So, you know, but it did also mean that you overheard political conversations. I've got a sister who had exactly the same upbringing, and she, 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 she's, of course, she's politically engaged, but she's not politically active in the same way that I am. So it had to be a bit more than the upbringing, but it was of a of a household where politics was discussed. So I was really lucky, and I had that good role models of not only mum and my mum and my dad, but my extended family as well. Very political family. Stel Morris, you went on to pass the 11 plus, I understand. Uh, I did. And you went on to attend uh, an all-girls grammar school, is that correct? I did, yeah, yeah. Can you tell me about your time there? Were you further inspired into politics during your time in secondary school? I found the transition to grammar school really tough. And I'm, not, I'm really not sure why. Um, you know, I've got supportive parents who are ambitious for me. I wanted to do well. I, I got on well with people. But I found, I found that... That, that move really tough. I've thought about it much more since being a teacher, and I think that the curriculum was totally different. So in, in order to do the 11 plus, it is basically, um, you know, mental arithmetic, problem solving, reading, writing, comprehension, and uh, that was all good at. And w when it got to the, there seemed to be a big gap between that and the secondary school curriculum. I think that's the truth. So when I... When I started that curriculum, I think perhaps two things happened. For the first time, I struggled. I'd done everything. I was a bit cocky, I think. I was used to being one of the first to grasp an idea. And all of a sudden, I was surrounded by people who grasped it just as quickly as me and more quickly. And I think, if I'm honest, I didn't quite understand that things wouldn't come as naturally to me as they had been. I probably ended up being a bit lazy. I probably didn't quite put the effort in because I'd never had to put the effort in. Yeah, so I, I found, I found the, um, uh, the join. I mean, the, all the evidence shows us that children find the join between schools really tough, and I certainly did. 
Having someone said that, I loved school. I loved going. I, I liked playing the sport. I liked the debating societies. I liked my friends. I liked being there. But I didn't academically do well. And that, that is a problem because that's one of the, you know, the things you're meant to do. So I struggled academically, but um, I certainly wasn't unhappy with being at the school. Were there any teachers that really inspired you or really you really remember? Yeah, lots of them, actually. But the one I always remember was Miss Timpson. You know Timpson's shoes? I do. She was a member of that family, actually. And uh, she was my form tutor. And um, she very she was a commissioner in the Girl Guides. So she really, she's a very, uh, uh, how can I say, she's a biology teacher. And she was very robust, you know, with uh, her gals and things like that. She, but she really cared for us. And I think the reason she sticks out is she kept telling me that I was quite good and that I could be all right. I mean, I know it. She wasn't one of the teachers who said, well, you, you know, you can't make it. You should never have been at grammar school. She never, ever said that. She's actually, she says, you, you can make it. You're quite good. So I, I got that praise that all children need, especially, you know, I'd lost my academic confidence, I think, at that point. And uh, I enjoyed her company. And um, she re- she was a role model, but she had faith and confidence in me. And I, I can remember writing to her once I went to teach training college and thanking her for that. And so I had lots of teachers who were good. And the P teachers, yeah, I tell you what, one thing that I was in what would now be year eight, what was year two in my days. And in our school, um, you played netball and then you started hockey. And in what would be year eight, they, the very, they chose the first hockey team. It was the second junior 11. And I was chosen to be in that team. And that slightly changed my life. For the first time in secondary school, somebody had picked me out as being good. So I had that incident, the being good at sport, again, helped me to rebuild my confidence. But it gave me a standing amongst my friends. I was the person who was good at sport. Probably didn't do much for my academic work. That was the only problem. So I'd put sport, which gave me my standing, and Miss Timpson, who kept telling me not to give up because she thought I'd make it. They were good teachers. I liked them. They were good people. And Estelle Morris, I understand that, as you say, uh, you were a student who sometimes struggled academically and that this came to uh, a climax uh, in your A-levels. They did. I just didn't pass them. It's as simple as that. I still can't understand it, Buzz, really. I mean, I, I used to... I revised all the facts. I mean, my mum and my grandma and my dad used to test me I mean, subjects like history, which I really like, I knew everything. I knew every word that was in, I could recite, you know, I knew all the dates and everything. What I couldn't do, I think what I did was I sat down in the exam and wrote down everything I knew, regardless of the question I'd been asked. I think that was my problem. But they, that, that sort of men, that, that sort of answering the question with the facts, I never was good at. What I was quite good at, was marshalling arguments because I like debate and I was never asked to do that. I mean, that they, and I'm not making excuses, but the, the things that they were testing, I was not good at and I don't think I still am good at. But if you give me an essay to write that is marshalling arguments, 
I am better at that. But if you give me an essay to write that is describing autumn, I am less good at that. And I, I, I think that was part of the problem. Um, because once I moved to college, when it was a different skill set, I did okay. And, and, and the other thing is I'm quite prepared to accept that maybe it was me and I just didn't either work hard enough or work hard um, in the way that was needed. It's a mystery to me, Baz. I wish I could go back and um, have another go at it, really. Modelling the, uh, the self-effacing attitude that has distinguished you from so many in politics, uh, Estelle Boris. Um, how did you go from getting those um, unfortunate uh, results in your A-levels to finding yourself training to be a teacher? Well, this is a, it's a big thing, isn't it? In my day, so don't forget, we're going back to the 70s, there was lots of girls' grammar school. To be honest, um, you either went to university or if they didn't think you'd make university, and um, in those days it was before the ex probably only about 10% of people went to university, so you really were looking at three Bs, you know, in a pretty tightly assessed system. You know, the head teacher or said, well, you know, do you want to be a nurse or do you want to be a teacher? Those were the two alternatives. And in those days, you did not need to go to university to be a teacher. So it, quite simply, it was a job I could do having failed my A-levels. Now, I'm not proud of that, but I don't think I've ended up being any worse a teacher than people who've got A-levels. And there's a message there somehow, because nowadays I wouldn't get into teacher training. But equally nowadays, I might pass my A-levels because teaching, you know, I think is better at understanding children and the barriers, you know, why they're struggling at certain points. So the honest answer, Baz, is I went into teaching because it was one of the jobs that I could do without A-levels. And I like school. And... Um, I, was, I didn't go into it reluctantly, but there wasn't an awful lot of other options given to me. What was your teacher training experience like? I, like, I enjoyed it. I liked it very much. I went to Coventry College of Education and um, I chose to do, I was doing PE because I was still good at games, but I chose to do sociology as my secondary subject and that reflected my interest in politics. And don't forget, none of those social sciences were done in my grammar school. So my A-levels were English, French and general studies, um, not sociology, politics and economics, which are my natural, in maybe not so much. I'm actually reasonably good at math, so maybe economics would have been a subject. But um, I, so once I got doing sociology, I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. I, I loved the argument and my essays. I was getting... A's for my essays because they were asking for a different skill set. So at the end of the year, I changed to do sociology as a main subject. And, you know, I, I was in my natural surroundings at that point, arguing the politics, uh, joining the Labour Club. But my academic, this is what's really weird, my academic work, it, it's never going to be brilliant because I'm not a good writer. I'm a better talker, I hope I'm a better talker than I'm writer. But they, in those days, it was just the start of the B.Ed., Bachelor of Education degree. So you do your teaching certificate in three years, and then you can take, if they think you're good enough, you can carry on and do the B.Ed., but you're meant to have the two A-levels. And I didn't, but they let me do it on the basis of my work on the three years. So I stayed on and did my B.Ed., 
But I was then back to um, unseen exams and I, I thoroughly enjoyed the B.Ed course. But I was back to taking exams and ended up with a third rather than a 2-1 or a 2-2. Two, two. I, I really do have a problem with um, time-written essays. But I loved, I loved college very much. It was a period where I grew up and I was also lucky enough to spend a term in America at an American university. I remember these were the days when you didn't do that. You know, my contemporaries had not been to America. And that that was so mind-broadening. And I'm still in touch with the family that I stayed with for a while or as I was there. So I very much enjoyed it. It was a very good experience. And can you tell us about the very first school that you taught in? It's the only school I taught in. So Sydney Stringer School um, in the centre of Coventry, uh, a brand new uh, community college. I joined it in its third year. Very multiracial. Uh, its ethnic makeup was probably, um, I think it was about 70% Asian, uh, 20% white, 10% Afro-Caribbean. And I taught there for 18 years. But what was really interesting over that period, and I don't think we understood it well, but we do now in retrospect, when I went there, the, the Asian children were um, Idi Amin refugees. They'd come from Tanzania, from Kenya, they'd, from Uganda. They were, on the whole, East African Asians, very often graduates in their own country, who'd been thrown out or had to flee, um, you know, war and persecution there. They did, that generation of, uh, of uh, newcomers to our country did really well. And then by the time it got to the late 70s, 80s, the children there were very often Pakistani and Bangladeshi, different religion, different different um, uh, dif- different language, came from a different country in terms of their education background. And then we got after that. I remember getting Vietnamese boat boat people. So although I taught there for 18 years, what I find fascinating now looking back, being in inner city school, it reflected the changes in the world because it was one of those schools where immigrant communities came to when they came to this country. And what you'd got alongside that all the time was a white community who hadn't left the inner city, but whose families had stayed there. And an Afro-Caribbean community that was the children of the Windrush generation and the problems that that brought in terms of the discrimination that they felt. So it was an absolutely fascinating school, which I from which I learned a great deal and to which I have a huge, you know, debt of gratitude to. But the reason I stayed was because A, I enjoyed it and I I kept getting promoted, so I got new challenges. And B, I was becoming politically active and it meant that I could do both. I think had I gone to a new school, I I wouldn't have just had the time to do the politics as well. I, I really would have had to focus on learning a new school. Estelle Morris, people sometimes say that the best doctors have also been patients. Would it be true to say that because of your experience as a struggling student during your own time at school, you were a better teacher or at the very least, did you bring some of what you learned as a struggling student to your practice as a teacher? Absolutely. That's a very perceptive question. And it also um, helped me um, as a politician. I, look, I'm, this, is not, um, this is not a recommendation to anybody who's listening to go and fail their exams because it's a great experience. It's not. Because it, it, hangs, it hangs over me still. 
I still wish I'd have passed my A-levels and I still look at people who went to Oxbridge and I think, God, what a wonderful opportunity. So it's not, it's not great, but it does give you a view of life and experience um, that, that if you succeed all the time, it doesn't. And we all know that learning with failure, it hardens you a bit. It toughens you up. You learn things from it. And there's a point where everybody first fails. It happens to everyone, unless you're exceptional. And the point at which it happens to you, you have to learn to emotionally manage it and to start to believe in yourself again. And that happened to me quite early in my life. And I, I do think that it, it, it was, it, it did give me um, an experience from which I learned. But I think more important than that, Baz, when I met other students who'd also struggled, I sort of knew where they were and I knew that it wasn't forever. I could understand that you can struggle in some things, yet in your own head, you know you're actually quite able. Because I never felt I was thick. I just couldn't understand why I couldn't show that I had some ability. Yeah, I never felt that I lacked intelligence. I just knew there was something I didn't have that my classmates had that allowed them to succeed. So when I looked at children who struggled, I could say to them, look, you know, you can't do this, but there's other things you can do. So I'm not glad I failed, but I am conscious that I think it gave me an experience that was very, very valuable, both in teaching and in politics. And that brings us naturally to your political career, Stel Morris, which was in parallel to your uh, work as a teacher, was also gradually developing, beginning to flourish. Can you take us through that? I stood for the council in the Warwick District Council because I lived in Leamington Spa in 1979. And uh, I got elected to the council, so they were evening meetings. So I was doing that as well as teaching. And uh, I'll be honest, when I was very, very young, I was when I held was then, I was... um, 27 at that point, so I was still young. But when I was a student, I thought, I'm not going to be a councillor. I want to be in Westminster politics. You know, that's where I want to be. And um, my dad had been an MP. And uh, then I joined the party. And, you know, that's another good thing I did. The party said, oh, you know, stand for the council. I thought, oh, you know, I, I want bigger things than that. That cockiness of youth, that overconfidence sometimes. And I went on the council. And I learned so much. I, I, I learned, it, it was absolutely invaluable. I remember the first thing I ever got done. I was out with uh, my friend one day. Well, that some, an elderly person, when I got elected from my ward, asked to see me. And uh, they showed me their leg. And they'd fallen because there'd been a hole in the pavement. And her leg was awful. And it was ulcerated. It was a terrible wound. I was the first thing anyone had ever asked me to do. So I went to the council and I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I'm very, what happens? I was in town on Saturday afternoon and we walked past the hole in the pavement and it had been filled in. And I sat and looked at it and I said to my friend, it's been filled in. And I'd got that done. I'd made the system work for this elderly person. It shouldn't have done that. And that was my first political achievement. I'd represented a citizen to the government who then said yes and done it. And prior to that, I'd wanted to be developing national policy. But that experience and the feeling 
of getting a the consequences of policies of, of services not being good and that ability you get when you make it work the way it should it's as joyous on the hole in the road as it is with anything else so i i think a bit of humility in politicians and, and remembering that essentially politics is about a hole in the road as well as the war in ukraine it's got to be all those things and I, I desperately wanted to be a Westminster politician, and that was my aim. But I'm so pleased that I did 12 years on the local authority. I really am pleased. It, it grounded me in better understanding that the key thing is the link between politics and the people. You know, that casework, that local work is of the essence, and you've got to, you've got to join the two. So getting the hole in, mended in the pavement was joining the two. And that's, I think, what you've always got to do. You say you always wanted to be a Westminster politician, Estelle Morris. How did you make that journey from being a councillor to being uh, elected to stand in the uh, early 90s? Not, it's not easy. You have to put yourself forward as a candidate. And I found it really hard. Um, what you always find in politics is by the time you get to a selection process, there's already somebody else who's the favoured candidate. I mean, when you fill in job applications, there's a, there used to be, I don't know if it's still the case, there's a phrase which says canvassing disqualifies, i.e. you're not meant to try and seek an advantage before the interview. In politics, you've got to try and seek an advantage before the interview. So I went to lots of constituencies, put myself forward, and people said, yeah, yeah, you did all right. There was either a local person there or a trade unionist with a strong connection or a favoured son or someone with a, a bigger with a reputation, which I didn't have. So I found it quite tough. But I just kept trying. So I tried for a seat in 82 for the 80, for the 83 election and didn't get chosen. I tried for a seat in 97 for 87 and didn't get chosen. And then for the 92 election, a seat I'd been for for the 87 election, but didn't get chosen because there was a favoured candidate, really. They came back and said, actually, you were quite good. So I was a bit of the favoured candidate then. But it was a Tory held seat. It wasn't a safe seat. So I won it, but I only won it by 152 votes. So it was a very, very marginal seat, the seat of Birmingham Yardley. So I won it in 82, won it in 97, and then won it in 2001. But it, it was a tough seat. It, was, it never had a, a majority bigger than 5,000 because it was vulnerable to the Liberals. Not, once we won it from the Tories, it was vulnerable to the Liberals, not the Tories. But it was a, it was a lovely seat. So it is, I, I tell you, the message that comes from that, Baz, is, you know, it was three general elections that... And I started early. I knew I, I wasn't mature enough. I wasn't ready had I got selected in 82, I'd have been scared. Um, but I did go and give it a try, and the experience was invaluable. That cockiness helped a bit there. And I did try again in 87, and I probably still was too young. But you've just got, you've just got to try. Sometimes youngsters say to me, they say, what advice would you give? And you just say yes to any opportunity that comes along. So someone says, do you want to be the delegate at this meeting? Or... Do you want to apply for the seat? You say yes. It doesn't mean you'll get it, but you say yes. And eventually you have a you've made a connection or you've 
you're invited to apply for something, which is something that you are then qualified to do. So you just have to keep trying. That's where having failed helps. It, you know, if you're somebody who's never been, never had a knockback, I think you find, you know, I think you find it quite difficult. So it's good experience. And eventually I did get elected the 92 election, although the Labour Party didn't form the government. You're elected in 92 as Stel Morris. Uh, coming into power in the 90s in the Labour Party must have been a very exciting time for the party generally. How did your views on education feed into that, um, that firmament of new policy ideas that were developing at the time? It wasn't exciting. It was disappointing as well because we had to form the government. But it was exciting for those of us who were elected. I, I think we were a very lucky generation because we got elected in 92 I mean, had Labour formed the government, we, we wouldn't have obviously got ministerial posts, but it gave us 92 to 97 to help our colleagues, our senior colleagues, uh, formulate policy. And because I did have experience in education, I am um, David Blunkett, who was, well, first Ann Taylor and then David Blunkett, who was Shadow Secretary of State for Education, asked me to work with them. And that was invaluable to learn from people like that and to help with policy was key. What the big challenge for me was that I wasn't elected as a representative of teachers. I was elected as a representative of the constituents of Yardley. That's mums and dads and children and teachers. And so I was not, and this, this is really important, I was not the teacher's representative in Parliament. And so me being very clear about that, but um, using the first-hand experience I had was really, really important. And what I didn't want to do was, to, one of my worries was that teachers would think, now she's in Parliament, she, she's forgotten what she learned in schools. So getting that right, you know, poacher turned gamekeeper, that's a problem. Or you're not, a, you're, not a you're not an MP for teachers, you're an MP for your constituents, that's a problem. So finding the happy medium um, was important and uh, I think there's ways of doing that I, and I very much hope that I was able to do that but in those first years it was a, in those years before 97 it was about using my experience um, but being conscious that um, the people the policies were for were the was children young people everyone who wanted to learn and our wider society so teachers were our partners in delivering that I think that was the key thing to remember. And as you were forming this new education policy agenda, what was high up on your list in terms of priorities, particularly uh, in terms of what you'd learnt from your time in the classroom? The important policies were literacy and numeracy. That's what we ended up focusing on and class size. What, what I took with me from the classroom, which I think was helpful, um, I remember saying to David, I mean, we did a lot on school buildings um, because there'd not been a lot of investment in school buildings. So there were holes in the roofs and class sizes were too large and some of the buildings need refurbished. I remember saying to David, you know, David, it's, what really matters is what happens in the classroom. It's the quality of teaching that matters. And he and I worked, he and I always believed that, I still do. We worked hard at that. So I think what I was... I think what I was able to bring, or hope that I was able to bring, was say, look, you know, our relationship with teachers is about us setting policies that make it 
easier for them to teach more effectively. It's not about giving them things. It's about saying to them, you know, how do we make you more effective teachers? So I think that I think that that was helpful. But it was also I'd been a teacher and I knew what the working environment was like, and it wasn't very good. So I think I, one thing I think I'm all, I always hope I was able to say was, look, one thing we could do to help teachers is, and there's a green paper that came out about 1998. It was called the Reform of the Teaching Profession. And for me, that was my biggest contribution as a minister in that it reflected a lot of the policy things that I think absolutely came from my experience as a teacher. So it, it's about continuing to listen to teachers, but delivering for everyone. And a lot of that is language. Politicians use the wrong language with teachers, whereas if I did have a strong relationship with teachers, I think it was partly because, A, they knew I knew the job and in a tough school, but also um, I think I, I was more likely to get the language um, one that didn't annoy them as much. Estelle Morris, you made the journey from being an MP to being the very first state school teacher to sit in the, the big seat as Secretary of State for Education. How did you make that journey and what are your reflections on that journey? I'm very, very lucky. Um, go back to it, said yes to any opportunity that came my way. Put my hand up to volunteer for everything. You always learn. And I met some good people who I made good professional relationships with. I mean, very lucky to get working with David Plunkett uh, in my early days. We got on very well. Uh, we still do. We were a good team. We had complementary skills. And he... He, he he furthered my career. You know, he, he made it clear to our collective boss, Prime Minister, that he thought I had something to offer. So I was lucky I was part of a team that brought out the best in me and a boss that um, was always ready, always allowed me to take credit for what I'd done. That's David's great strength. He worked with some bosses that are happy if you do the work but are not quite as happy for you to take all the credit. So I, I was lucky with that. And then um, I was lucky in the times. Um, I, I was lucky enough to become an MP when Labour was on the ascendancy, when there was an excitement, when the public believed in us, when there was money around, when there was willingness for us to succeed. It was before 9-11, um, my first parts in politics. And if you think of how the world's changed since then and got a far more international focus, that my first ministerial, the first ministerial years for me were before international affairs were dominating the domestic political agenda. So my policy area, education, was at the top of the national agenda. I was looking, it wasn't to do with me, it wasn't to do with David, it was something to do with Tony Blair saying that's where it will be. But there wasn't in those days that pressing international agenda that came in our second term. And the other thing I was lucky about is that my constituency was in Birmingham and Tim Brickhouse came along to be our director of education. What more, what, what better could I want? Do you know, to be sitting at the feet of education giants like those. But that was, you know, I was lucky because that those were the people around in my time. I hope that I seize the opportunity. And I like to think as I've got older, 
the, the next generation coming up will think that I offered something to them as well. So, you know, what's your journey? It's a heck of a lot of luck, but you work damn hard. You take every opportunity and um, you keep your feet on the ground. You don't forget where you come from. You don't forget why you're there. And you don't forget that you're not going to be there long. So you better do what you want to do while you're there. One thing that I'm sure a lot of us can learn from you, Estelle Morris, in addition to taking those opportunities, is that while in office, you were famous for, uh, as it was put at the time, getting on with the job rather than playing politics. What are your thoughts on this? And do you think that that affected your political career at all, that approach? Yes, I do. But I think I, I, I think that it's taken me a lot of years, I think, to... Um, uh, to come to terms with that, and I probably wasn't right. Really, the, the, there's two great skills you need. It, I think you absolutely need to understand the education system, and I think I did. But you absolutely need to be a big political player, and I don't think I was. And there's, uh, and you've got to be good at both of those, and that's why um, you might get. I'm not going to mention names, but. There are some former secretaries of state for education who, you know, going back, who teachers didn't like, but they managed to deliver because they were very astute political players. I, I, I was the reverse of that. I think I was good at getting on with it. I really liked the implementation. I loved doing that. But meanwhile... There's a whole world of politics going on that is nothing to do with the implementation, but will affect the implementation. So I thought that I could be a secretary of state who delivered and everyone judged me by that. And I don't think it's quite like that. You know, if the journalists are talking about something else, you can't just ignore it. You've got to go and deal with that as well. And I don't think I was... I'm a good politician, but I don't think I was a great politician at doing that bit of the job. And sometimes I think where I struggled or where I got fed up was when the two were in conflict. So I would think, but we're delivering that. And the reality would be, well, you might be, but what the newspapers are saying or what what the rest of government's doing is this. And sometimes I, I wasn't, um, I think I, it was this cockiness from my, my primary school days. I thought, well, that's up to them. But what I think is what is delivering. They can get on with that and I'll carry delivering. And I should have been a bit more attuned to, uh, to, to getting that really top scale politics. I, I did do it. I mean, we had a, I don't want, I don't want to say I didn't do it at all. I mean, one of the things you have to do is persuade the prime minister that you're doing a good job. You have to go to the Treasury and argue for money. And I think I did that all right. But it's very difficult to explain that wider political context in which that top-level politics takes place. Stel Morris, your year as Secretary of State for Education was beset with many challenges. It would be great to hear which of those challenges really stood out to you as being the ones you uh, really recall grappling with the most and what your reflections are on dealing with those challenges now. Well, the thing sort of triggered my getting fed up, I, I suppose, or not feeling um, that I was probably the best person's job was was the A levels thing, and um, it's a perfect example of what we've just been talking about. 
I got frustrated because I thought I'd solved the problem, and yet you wake up to every, you know you're leading every news bulletin and you're the headlines in all the newspapers with the world telling you you've not solved it. I found that quite difficult to to cope with. What I think, looking back though, which is a broader lesson for everyone in in politics, um, I had that very marginal seat, and no one said to me, um, "You might be Secretary of State." So. I didn't even know I'd get elected for a third term. And so I didn't sort of allow myself the luxury of thinking, if I'm Secretary of State, what will I do? And so essentially, I didn't think myself into the job uh, because I think I protected myself from losing the general election by not thinking myself into the job. But but the job starts straight away. And um, the DfE wasn't well staffed for it a lot of staff had left so we started with um a secretary of state that hadn't thought themselves into the job and some key a new permanent secretary with who was excellent excellent and with whom i'd gone on very well and knew well but a lot of key posts not in place so if there's a lesson to learn i think it's for everyone that think yourself into your next job if it's a senior post you might not get it in which case you'll have to learn to live with a disappointment. Um, but it's better to think yourself into a job. So I think, I think looking back, I wasn't ready to go on day one. So when the things, the difficult things came along, I wasn't quite in the right place. My head wasn't quite in the right place. And we, the department wasn't quite in the right place. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. What prompted your decision to resign after a year in post, Estelle Morris? It's what I felt I needed to do. Um, I, I couldn't see an alternative. I couldn't see a way out. I think it was about self-preservation. I think I thought that I was, I think I thought that politically I was so badly damaged that I wouldn't be any use to the delivery bit. Because that, that, that's what I thought I could do well. I thought, well, I can't do the delivery bit well now because... I'm a bit of a um, damaged goods politically. And uh, I think that's that's probably true. I mean, I'm not arguing about that at all. That was my decision. And we all all get points in our life when we have to to make a decision. And you you can revisit it as much as you want. And the problem is that every I don't revisit it because every time you do, you're older, you've got different experiences. You never... It's, it's difficult to absolutely remember how you felt at that moment in time. And that's all that mattered. What, what, how did I feel then? I couldn't see a way out of it. How did I feel then? 20 years later, because it is 20 years later, you might say, well, couldn't have you done this? And the answer is yes, but that's, you didn't see that at the time. So th- these, are, these are things of the moment. And then, you know, life doesn't give you the opportunity to revisit it. And I think the key is to learn from it and I've been very lucky immensely lucky because it could have meant the end of any opportunity it really could and I was very lucky because people still gave me opportunities to use whatever skills I've got and for that I mean I'm immensely grateful and I, you know every day I'm grateful for that. So you went from um, the Department for Education to DCMS if I'm not mistaken I'm sure you took with you some learnings from the DFE to DCMS I did. I mean, I, I went there with a, 
the trauma of having left in between, and I think it was an eight-month gap. I didn't know where to go back, but Tessa Jarl was Secretary of State. And uh, she said, look, I, I, can find, I think we could work together well. We'd always work together well. I did go back. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But what I learned was that um, I didn't have the experience. I wasn't the person who's going in there. I wasn't an artist. I wasn't a filmmaker. I wasn't a photographer. I wasn't a dancer or a musician. So when I met the people who I was working with, the sector, I couldn't say to them, I am one of you. I can speak your language. And that's, for me, that was the biggest learning. Well, how can I work with them? And I think what I was able to do, which I'm not, yeah, I think I what I was able to do was because by then I understood politics a, a lot better and I was more practiced at building bridges and partnerships and working relationships. And I think I'd become a better listener. I, I think that I, what I tried to do was build that confidence in them as somebody who respected them, admired them, listened them and learned from them and knew how to represent them to the parliament. So like a bridge. I, it, was, it was a great fun, but I met some wonderful people. And what's really interesting, Baz, I spent my life working with the education sector. They are so different. They, they are like the mirror. Uh, they're, they're just so different. The way, as professionals, they are just a different group of professionals. It's not about better or worse. The way they do their jobs is just different. And that was, that was good. And my great learning lesson was when I was in education, we got criticised that we'd not done we've not put as much creativity in the curriculum. We got criticised for squeezing creativity out of the curriculum. And I thought I understood those arguments when I was in education. When I went to DCMS, I realised I hadn't understood the arguments. So had I done my job the other way around, I would have done creativity in DFE different than I did do. I better understood the link. So, I mean, I wasn't Secretary of State, but... I enjoyed those years and it changed my life a bit in a way because some of the things I still do are to do with the arts and culture as a trustee and in terms of um, being on boards and that. They're on the whole to do with arts and culture uh, because I think I, I really learned the importance of those things to society. Thinking about your time as a minister of Stel Morris, do you think that there's an important lesson there in terms of the constitution of the workforce in Whitehall. Do we need more teachers in the Department for Education? Do we need more artists in DCMS? We do, or we need a link. I mean, one of the things we were good at, when, when we went in the department, we set up, the, the, in DFE, we set up a unit called the um, Schools Effectiveness Unit. And we, there were civil servants there because there'd been a similar unit, but we actually employed teachers directly into that unit. And what I think we started, which continues, is having a greater interchange. So teachers work more closely now with the DfE than they ever did. I mean, it's not all teachers, but it's a lot of teachers. So what, what, I, would, what I would say, but that's really it. What, what is important is that the voice of serving teachers is heard in the civil service, and there's lots of ways of making that happen. They don't all have to become civil servants, although they could become civil servants. But it can be an advisory group, a focus group, 
you know, a secondment or whatever, but it's absolutely vital that those links are there. Stel Morris, you're still very actively involved in lots of educational work and cultural work. What really keeps you going? What keeps driving you after such a long and eventful career? I like working. I mean, uh, it's like, it's, it's the things I like doing. I like meeting, I like talking, I like being part of things. I like, um, I don't teach now, but I like seeing things that, I like seeing the outputs of what the next generation's doing. There's still nothing gives you as much pleasure of being told about a child who's turned the corner and is doing well, or a young person who's had a difficult, you'll know this from your job, a young person's had a difficult background and finds a way forward. So being part of that world is it, it, exciting. And I, if I'm honest, I need it. It, you know, it... Um, it gives me the adrenaline that, that, that I enjoy. I don't work as hard as I did, and I'm not as involved as I was, but I still like reading policy documents. I very much enjoy my contribution in the house that I can make in the House of Lords and the work that I do um, with Birmingham Education Partnership. But I never pretend I could go in and uh, teach a class of children well. I think those days are long gone. Baroness Estelle Morris, there's two questions we always ask all of our guests on the Life Pedagogic. Firstly, is there anything you've really changed your mind on in educational policy or practice over the course of your career? And if so, what changed your mind? Yeah, I think one thing I've learned and changed my mind on is in the days when I started teaching in the 1970s, there was too much of a feeling that children from tough backgrounds needed a different sort of education because they were from tough backgrounds. I've changed my mind about that. It's the challenge of the school system to give them exactly the same body of knowledge and skills and experiences as everyone else. And really the introduction of the national curriculum helped me see that. So in my school, you know, in years 10 and 11, we had, before the national curriculum, we had children going out on work experience for five days a week. That was because we weren't teaching them in a way that inspired them. I have absolutely changed my mind. The minute the national curriculum came in and somebody said, I'm sorry, but you've got to start teaching those children Shakespeare, I realized it could be done. So I, I've, as I've seen more, I've got far less sympathetic to that argument of the softness that what children from disadvantaged backgrounds is need us to accommodate, you know, to accommodate things so they can fit in. Now, what we do is remove the barriers to their learning so that they can succeed. And over the length of my teaching and my time in education, I think people from my bit of the political spectrum, no, I shouldn't speak for others, but certainly for me, that's been the biggest change. And thinking about the current English educational system, Baroness Estelle Morris, what two parts of it would you most like to see change? I'd like to, I'd like to see um, the link between outside learning and schools change. So, I, I, whereas I think schools are better than they used to be, children still only spend twenty percent of their time in school. So, what happens to them in early years? And the one thing we should learn from the independent school sector is how good they are on extracurricular activities, and it's the first thing we cut when the going gets tough. So one thing I'd like to change is an education system that is more than schools. 
It's after school learning, holiday learning, adventure, you know, times away, a strong youth service, an early year system. So I'd, I'd like that. I'd like that. And the second thing I'd, I'd also like to change at the moment is the accountability system. I think we've gone through 30 years of an accountability system that shaped our schools and for lots of good things, but it's run its course. And now the curriculum is too narrow and too, it's not as it should be. So I'd like some, it's been 30 years of that. And I know the changes it's delivered because I was teaching before the changes, but it's run its course. So I'd like to see a really big national debate on, we have changed, we've had the benefits of that accountability system, but what do we want an account, what behaviours do we want an accountability system to um, influence now and encourage? And it would be that broader education. And um, I think that's something that should happen. And I very much hope that somebody at the next election will put it forward as a very good idea. Very much hoping it might be my party, but I don't know. Baroness Estelle Morris, it's been a pleasure and a privilege having you on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed discussing your life pedagogic. I have indeed. It's been delightful to have the conversation and I I wish you and your organisation great success in the important work that you do. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.